0: Adventure Twelve in the Return of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Adventure Twelve, the Adventure of the Abbey Grange. It was on a bitterly cold and frosty morning, towards the end of the winter of ninety-seven, that I was awakened by a tugging at my shoulder. It was Holmes. The candle in his hand shone upon his eager, stooping face and told me at a glance that something was amiss. "'Come, Watson, come!' he cried. "'The game is afoot, not a word. Into your clothes and come!' Ten minutes later we were both in a cab and rattling through the silent streets on our way to Charing Cross Station. The first faint winter's dawn was beginning to appear, and we could dimly see the occasional figure of an early workman as he passed us, blurred and indistinct in the opalescent London reek. Holmes nestled in silence into his heavy coat, and I was glad to do the same, for the air was most bitter, and neither of us had broken our fast. It was not until we had consumed some hot tea at the station, and taken our places in the Kentish train, that we were sufficiently thawed—he to speak, and I to listen. Holmes drew a note from his pocket, and read aloud. Abbey Grange, Marsham, Kent. 3.30 a.m. My dear Mr. Holmes, I should be very glad of your immediate assistance in what promises to be a most remarkable case. It is something quite in your line. Except for releasing the lady I will see that everything is kept exactly as I have found it. But I beg you not to lose an instant, as it is difficult to leave Sir Eustace here. Yours faithfully, Stanley Hopkins. "'Hopkins has called me in seven times, and on each occasion his summons has been entirely justified,' said Holmes. "'I fancy that every one of his cases has found its way into your collection, and I must admit, Watson, that you have some power of selection which atones for much of which I deplore in your narratives. Your fatal habit of looking at everything from the point of view of a story instead of as a scientific exercise—' has ruined what might have been an instructive and even classical series of demonstrations. You slur over work of the utmost finesse and delicacy in order to dwell upon sensational details which may excite but cannot possibly instruct the reader. Why do you not write them yourself? I said with some bitterness. I will, my dear Watson, I will. At present I am, as you know, fairly busy but I propose to devote my declining years to the composition of a textbook, which shall focus the whole art of detection into one volume. Our present research appears to be a case of murder." "'You think this Sir Eustace is dead, then?' "'I should say so. Hopkins's writing shows considerable agitation, and he is not an emotional man. Yes, I gather there has been some violence, and that the body is left for our inspection. A mere suicide would not have caused him to send for me. As to the release of the lady, it would appear that she has been locked in her room during the tragedy. We are moving in high life, Watson, crackling paper, E.B., monogram, coat of arms, picturesque address. I think that friend Hopkins will live up to his reputation, and that we shall have an interesting morning. The crime was committed before twelve last night." "'How can you possibly tell?' by an inspection of the trains, and by reckoning the time. The local police had to be called in. They had to communicate with Scotland Yard. Hopkins had to go out, and he in turn had to send for me. All that makes a fair night's work. Well, here we are at Chislehurst Station, and we shall soon set our doubts at rest." A drive of a couple of miles through narrow country lanes brought us to a park gate, which was opened for us by an old lodge-keeper, whose haggard face bore the reflection of some great disaster. The avenue ran through a noble park, between lines of ancient elms, and ended in a low, widespread house, pillared in front after the fashion of Palladio. The central part was evidently of a great age, and shrouded in ivy, but the large windows showed that modern changes had been carried out, and one wing of the house appeared to be entirely new. The youthful figure and alert, eager face of Inspector Stanley Hopkins confronted us in the open doorway. "'I am very glad you have come, Mr. Holmes—and you too, Dr. Watson. But, indeed, if I had my time over again, I should not have troubled you, for since the lady's come to herself she has given so clear an account of the affair that there is not much left for us to do. You remember that Lewisham gang of burglars?' "'What, the three Randalls?' "'Exactly. The father and two sons. It's their work. I've no doubt of it. They did a job at Sydenham a fortnight ago, and were seen and described. Rather cool to do another so soon and so near. But it is they, beyond all doubt. It's a hanging matter this time. Sir Eustace is dead, then. Yes, his head was knocked in with his own poker. Sir Eustace Brackenstall, the driver tells me. Exactly. One of the richest men in Kent. Lady Brackenstall is in the morning-room. Poor lady! She has had a most dreadful experience. She seemed half dead when I first saw her. I think you'd best see her and hear her account of the facts. Then we'll examine the dining-room together." Lady Brackenstall was no ordinary person. Seldom have I seen so graceful a figure, so womanly a presence, and so beautiful a face. She was a blonde golden-haired, blue-eyed, and would no doubt have had the perfect complexion which goes with such coloring had not her recent experience left her drawn and haggard. Her sufferings were physical as well as mental, for over one eye rose a hideous plum-colored swelling, which her maid, a tall, austere woman, was bathing assiduously with vinegar and water. The lady lay back exhausted upon her couch, but her quick, observant gaze as we entered the room and the alert expression of her beautiful features showed that neither her wits nor her courage had been shaken by her terrible experience. She was enveloped in a loose dressing gown of blue and silver, but a black sequin-covered dinner-dress lay upon the couch beside her. "'I have told you all that happened, Mr. Hopkins,' she said wearily. "'Could you not repeat it for me? Well, if you think it necessary—' I will tell these gentlemen what occurred. Have they been in the dining-room yet?" "'I thought they had better hear your ladyship's story first. "'I shall be glad when you can arrange matters. It is horrible to me to think of him still lying there." She shuddered and buried her face in her hands. As she did so, the loose gown fell back from her forearms. Holmes uttered an exclamation. "'You have other injuries, madam. What is this?' Two vivid red spots stood out on one of the white round limbs. She hastily covered it. "'It is nothing. It has no connection with this hideous business to-night. If you and your friend will sit down, I will tell you all I can.' "'I am the wife of Sir Eustace Brackenstall. I have been married about a year. I suppose that it is no use my attempting to conceal that our marriage has not been a happy one.' I fear that all our neighbors would tell you that, even if I were to attempt to deny it. Perhaps the fault may be partly mine. I was brought up in the freer, less conventional atmosphere of South Australia, and this English life, with its proprieties and its primness, is not congenial to me. But the main reason lies in the one fact which is notorious to everyone, and that is that Sir Eustace was a confirmed drunkard. To be with such a man for an hour is unpleasant. Can you imagine what it means for a sensitive and high-spirited woman to be tied to him for day and night? It is a sacrilege, a crime, a villainy to hold that such a marriage is binding. I say that these monstrous laws of yours will bring a curse upon the land. God will not let such wickedness endure." For an instant she sat up, her cheeks flushed and her eyes blazing from under the terrible mark upon her brow. Then she, strong, soothing hand of the austere maid, drew her head down onto the cushion, and the wild anger died away into passionate sobbing. At last she continued, "'I will tell you about last night. You are aware, perhaps, that in this house all the servants sleep in the modern wing. This central block is made up of the dwelling-rooms, with the kitchen behind and our bedroom above. My maid, Teresa, sleeps above my room. There is no one else.' and no sound could alarm those who are in the farther wing. This must have been well known to the robbers, or they would not have acted as they did. Sir Eustace retired about half-past ten. The servants had already gone to their quarters. Only my maid was up, and she had remained in her room at the top of the house until I needed her services. I sat until after eleven in this room, absorbed in a book. Then I walked round to see that all was right before I went upstairs. It was my custom to do this myself for as i have explained sir eustace was not always to be trusted i went into the kitchen the butler's pantry the gun room the billiard room the drawing room and finally the dining room as i approached the window which is covered with thick curtains i suddenly felt the wind blow upon my face and realized that it was open i flung the curtain aside and found myself face to face with a broad-shouldered elderly man who had just stepped into the room. The window is a long French one which really forms a door leading to the lawn. I held my bedroom candle lit in my hand, and by its light, behind the first man, I saw two others who were in the act of entering. I stepped back, but the fellow was on me in an instant. He caught me first by the wrist and then by the throat. I opened my mouth to scream, but he struck me a savage blow with his fist over the eye and felled me to the ground. I must have been unconscious for a few minutes, for when I came to myself I found that they had torn down the bell-rope and had secured me tightly to the oaken chair which stands at the head of the dining-room table. I was so firmly bound that I could not move, and a handkerchief round my mouth prevented me from uttering a sound. It was at this instant that my unfortunate husband entered the room. He had evidently heard some suspicious sounds, and he came prepared for such a scene as he found. He was dressed in nightshirt and trousers, with his favorite blackthorn, cudgel in his hand. He rushed at the burglars, but another, it was an elderly man, stooped, picked the poker out of the grate, and struck him a horrible blow as he passed. He fell with a groan, never moved again. I fainted once more, but again it could only have been for a very few minutes during which I was insensible. When I opened my eyes, I found that they had collected the silver from the sideboard, and they had drawn a bottle of wine which stood there. Each of them had a glass in his hand. I have already told you, have I not, that one was elderly, with a beard, and the others young, hairless lads. They might have been a father with his two sons. They talked together in whispers. Then they came over and made sure that I was securely bound. Finally they withdrew, closing the window after them. It was quite a quarter of an hour before I got my mouth free. When I did so, my screams brought the maid to my assistance. The other servants were soon alarmed, and we sent for the local police, who instantly communicated with London. "'That is really all that I can tell you, gentlemen and I trust that it will not be necessary for me to go over so painful a story again." "'Any questions, Mr. Holmes?' asked Hopkins. "'I will not impose any further tax upon Lady Brackenstall's patience and time,' said Holmes. "'Before I go into the dining-room, I should like to hear your experience.' He looked at the maid. "'I saw the man before ever they came into the house,' said she. As I sat by my bedroom window, I saw three men in the moonlight down by the lodge-gate yonder, but I thought nothing of it at the time. It was more than an hour after that I heard my mistress scream, and down I ran to find her poor lamb, just as she says, and him on the floor with his blood and brains over the room. It was enough to drive a woman out of her wits, tied there, and her very dress spotted with him. She never wanted courage, did Miss Mary Fraser of Adelaide. And Lady Brackenstall of Abbey Grange hasn't learned new ways. You've questioned her long enough, you gentlemen, and now she's coming to her own room, just with her old Theresa to get the rest that she badly needs with a motherly tenderness. The gaunt woman put her arm round her mistress and led her from the room. She's been with her all her life, said Hopkins, nursed her as a baby, and came with her to England when they first left Australia eighteen months ago. Theresa Wright is her name. And the kind of maid you don't pick up nowadays. This way, Mr. Holmes, if you please." The keen interest had passed out of Holmes's expressive face, and I knew that with the mystery all the charm of the case had departed. There still remained an arrest to be effected, but what were these commonplace rogues that he should soil his hands with them? An abstruse and learned specialist who finds that he has been called in for a case of measles would experience something of the annoyance which I read in my friend's eyes yet the scene in the dining-room of the Abbey Grange was sufficiently strange to arrest his attention and to recall his waning interest. It was a very large and high chamber, with carved oak ceiling, oaken panelling, and a fine array of deer's heads and ancient weapons around the walls. At the further end from the door was the high French window of which we had heard. Three smaller windows on the right-hand side filled the apartment with cold winter sunshine. On the left was a large, deep fireplace with a massive overhanging oak mantelpiece. Beside the fireplace was a heavy oaken chair with arms and crossbars at the bottom. In and out through the open woodwork was woven a crimson cord which was secured at each side to the crosspiece below. In releasing the lady the cord had been slipped off her, but the knots with which it had been secured still remained. These details only struck our attention afterwards, for our thoughts were entirely absorbed by the terrible object which lay upon the tiger-skin hearthrug in front of the fire. It was the body of a tall, well-made man about forty years of age. He lay upon his back, his face upturned with his white teeth grinning through his short black beard. His two clenched hands were raised above his head and a heavy blackthorn stick lay across them. His dark, handsome, aquiline features were convulsed into a spasm of vindictive hatred which had set his dead face in a terribly fiendish expression. He had evidently been in his bed when the alarm had broken out, for he wore a foppish, embroidered nightshirt and his bare feet projected from his trousers. His head was horribly injured and the whole room bore witness to the savage ferocity of the blow which had struck him down beside him lay the heavy poker bent into a curve by the concussion holmes examined both it and the indescribable wreck which it had wrought he must be a powerful man this elder randall he remarked yes said hopkins i have some record of the fellow and he's a rough customer you should have no difficulty in getting him. Not the slightest. We've been on the lookout for him, and there was some idea that he got away to America. Now that we know that the gang are here, I don't see how they can escape. We have the news at every seaport already, and a reward will be offered before evening. What beats me is how they could have done so mad a thing, knowing that the lady could describe them, and that we could not fail to recognise the description. Exactly one would have expected that they would silence Lady Brackenstall as well. They may not have realized, I suggested, that she would recover from her faint. That is likely enough. If she seemed to be senseless they would not take her life. What about this poor fellow, Hopkins? I seem to have heard some queer stories about him. He was a good-hearted man when he was sober, but a perfect fiend when he was drunk or rather when he was half-drunk, for he seldom really went the old way. The devil seemed to be in him at such times, and he was capable of anything. From what I hear, in spite of all his wealth and his title, he very nearly came our way once or twice. There was a scandal about his drenching a dog with petroleum and setting it on fire her ladyship's dog, to make the matter worse—and that was only ushed up with difficulty. Then he threw a decanter at the maid, Theresa Wright. There was trouble about that. On the whole, and between ourselves it would be a brighter house without him. What are you looking at now?" Holmes was down on his knees, examining with great attention the knots upon the red cord with which the lady had been secured. Then he carefully scrutinized the broken and frayed end where it had snapped off when the burglar had dragged it down. When this was pulled down, the bell in the kitchen must have rung loudly," he remarked. "'No one could hear it. The kitchen stands right at the back of the house.' How did the burglar know no one would hear it? How dared he pull at a bell-rope in that reckless fashion?" "'Exactly, Mr. Holmes, exactly. You put the very question which I have asked myself again and again. There can be no doubt that this fellow must have known the house and its habits. He must have perfectly understood that the servants would all be in bed at that comparatively early hour, and that no one could possibly hear a bell ring in the kitchen. Therefore he must have been in close league with one of the servants. Surely that is evident. But there are eight servants, and all of them good character." "'Other things being equal,' said Holmes, "'one would expect the one at whose head the master threw a decanter." And yet that would involve treachery towards the mistress to whom the woman seems devoted. Well, well, the point is a minor one, and when you have Randall, you will probably find no difficulty in securing his accomplice. The lady's story certainly seems to be corroborated, if it needed corroboration, by every detail which we see before us. He walked to the French window and threw it open. There are no signs here, but the ground is iron-hard, and one would not expect them. I see that these candles in the mantelpiece have been lighted." "'Yes, it was by their light and that of the lady's bedroom candle that the burglars saw their way about." "'And what did they take?' "'Well, they didn't take much, only half a dozen articles of plate off the sideboard. Lady Brackenstall thinks that they were themselves so disturbed by the death of Sir Eustace they didn't ransack the house as they would otherwise have done." "'No doubt that is true. "'And yet they drank some wine, I understand.' "'To steady their nerves.' "'Exactly. These three glasses upon the sideboard have been untouched, I suppose?' "'Yes, and the bottle stands as I left it.' "'Let us look at it.' "'Hello! Hello! What is this?' The three glasses were grouped together, all of them tinged with wine, and one of them containing some dregs of bee-swing. The bottle stood near them, two-thirds full, and beside it lay a long, deeply stained cork. Its appearance and the dust upon the bottle showed that it was no common vintage which the murderers had enjoyed. A change had come over Holmes's manner. He had lost his listless expression, and again I saw an alert light of interest in his keen, deep-set eyes. He raised the cork and examined it minutely how did they draw it?" he asked. Hopkins pointed to a half-opened drawer. In it lay some table linen and a large corkscrew. "'Did Lady Brackenstall say that screw was used?' "'Now, you remember that she was senseless at the moment when the bottle was opened?' "'Quite so. As a matter of fact, that screw was not used. This bottle was opened by a pocket screw probably contained in a knife, and not more than an inch and a half long. If you will examine the top of the cork, you will observe that the screw was driven in three times before the cork was extracted. It has never been transfixed. This long screw would have transfixed it and drawn it up with a single pull. When you catch this fellow, you will find that he has one of these multiplex knives in his possession."
1: "'Excellent!'
0: said Hopkins. But these glasses do puzzle me, I confess. Lady Brackenstall actually saw the three men drinking, did she not?" -"Yes, she was clear about that." -"Then there is an end of it. What more is to be said?" -"And yet you must admit that the three glasses are very remarkable, Hopkins." -"What? You see nothing remarkable?" -"Well, well. Let it pass." Perhaps when a man has special knowledge and special powers like my own, it rather encourages him to seek a complex explanation when a simpler one is at hand. Of course, it must be a mere chance about the glasses. Well, good morning, Hopkins. I don't see that I can be of any use to you, and you appear to have your case very clear. You will let me know when Randall is arrested, and any further developments which may occur. I trust that I shall soon have to congratulate you upon a successful conclusion. Come, Watson. I fancy that we may employ ourselves more profitably at home." During our return journey I could see by Holmes's face that he was much puzzled by something which he had observed. Every now and then, by an effort, he would throw off the impression and talk as if the matter were clear. But then his doubts would settle down upon him again, and his knitted brows and abstracted eyes— would show that his thoughts had gone back once more to the great dining-room of the Abbey Grange, in which this midnight tragedy had been enacted. At last, by a sudden impulse, just as our train was crawling out of a suburban station, he sprang onto the platform and pulled me out after him. "'Excuse me, my dear fellow,' said he, as we watched the rear carriages of our train disappearing round a curve. I am sorry to make you the victim of what may seem a mere whim, but on my life, Watson, I simply can't leave that case in this condition. Every instinct that I possess cries out against it. It's wrong. It's all wrong. I'll swear that it's wrong." And yet the lady's story was complete. The maid's corroboration was sufficient. The detail was fairly exact. What have I to put up against that? Three wine-glasses. That is all. But if I had not taken things for granted, if I had examined everything with the case with which I should have shown had we approached the case de novo, and had no cut-and-dried story to warp my mind, should I not then have found something more definite to go upon? Of course I should. Sit down on this bench, Watson, until a train for Chislehurst arrives, and allow me to lay the evidence before you imploring you in the first instance to dismiss from your mind the idea that anything which the maid or her mistress may have said must necessarily be true. The lady's charming personality must not be permitted to warp our judgment. Surely there are details in her story which, if we looked at in cold blood, would excite our suspicion. These burglars made a considerable haul at Sydenham a fortnight ago. Some account of them and of their appearance was in the papers, and would naturally occur to anyone who wished to invent a story in which imaginary robbers should play a part. As a matter of fact, burglars who have done a good stroke of business are, as a rule, only too glad to enjoy the proceeds in peace and quiet without embarking on another perilous undertaking. Again, it is unusual for burglars to operate at so early an hour. It is unusual for burglars to strike a lady to prevent her screaming, since one would imagine that was the sure way to make her scream. It is unusual for them to commit murder when their numbers are sufficient to overpower one man. It is unusual for them to be content with a limited plunder when there was much more within their reach. And, finally, I should say that it was very unusual for such men to leave a bottle half empty. How do all these unusuals strike you, Watson?" "'Their cumulative effect is certainly considerable, and yet each of them is quite possible in itself. The most unusual thing of all, as it seems to me, is that the lady should be tied to the chair." "'Well, I am not so clear about that, Watson, for it is evident that they must either kill her or else secure her in such a way that she could not give immediate notice of their escape. But at any rate I have shown, have I not?" That there is a certain element of improbability about the lady's story. And now, on the top of this, comes the incident of the wine-glasses." "'What about the wine-glasses?' "'Can you see them in your mind's eye?' "'I see them clearly.' "'We are told that three men drank from them.' "'Does that strike you as likely?' "'Why not? There was wine in each glass.' "'Exactly but there was beeswing only in one glass. You must have noticed f- that fact. What does that suggest to your mind?" -"The last glass filled will be most likely to contain beeswing?" -"Not at all." The bottle was full of it, and it is inconceivable that the first two glasses were clear and the third heavily charged with it. There are two possible explanations, and only two. One is that after the second glass was filled the bottle was violently agitated, and so the third glass received the beeswing. That does not appear probable. No, no, I am sure that I am right." What then do you suppose? That only two glasses were used, and that the dregs of both were poured into a third glass, so as to give the false impression that three people had been here. In that way all the beeswing would be in the last glass, would it not? Yes, I am convinced that this is so. But if I have hit upon the true explanation of this one small phenomenon, then in an instant the case rises from the commonplace to the exceedingly remarkable. For it can only mean that Lady Brackenstall and her maid have deliberately lied to us, that not one word of their story is to be believed, that they have some very strong reason for covering the real criminal and that we must construct our case for ourselves without any help from them. That is the mission which now lies before us, and here, Watson, is the Sydenham train." The household at the Abbey Grange were much surprised at our return. But Sherlock Holmes, finding that Stanley Hopkins had gone off to report to headquarters, took possession of the dining-room, locked the door upon the inside, and devoted himself for two hours to one of those minute and laborious investigations which form the solid basis on which his brilliant edifices of deduction were reared. Seated in a corner, like an interested student who observes the demonstration of his professor, I followed every step of that remarkable research. The window, the curtains, the carpet, the chair, the rope. Each in turn was minutely examined and duly pondered. The body of the unfortunate baronet had been removed, and all else remained as we had seen it in the morning. Finally, to my astonishment, Holmes climbed up onto the massive mantelpiece. Far above his head hung the few inches of red cord which were still attached to the wire. For a long time he gazed upward at it and then in an attempt to get nearer to it he rested his knee upon a wooden bracket on the wall. This brought his hand within a few inches of the broken end of the rope, but it was not this so much as the bracket itself which seemed to engage his attention. Finally, he sprang down with an ejaculation of satisfaction. "'It's all right, Watson,' said he. "'We have got our case, one of the most remarkable in our collection. But dear me, how slow-witted I have been, and how nearly I have committed the blunder of my lifetime! Now I think that, with a few missing links, my chain is almost complete." "'You've got your men?' "'Man, Watson, man. Only one. But a very formidable person. Strong as a lion. Witness the blow that bent that poker. Six foot three in height, active as a squirrel, Dexterous with his fingers, finally remarkably quick-witted, for this whole ingenious story is of his concoction. Yes, Watson, we have come upon the handiwork of a very remarkable individual, and yet in that bell-rope he has given us a clue which should not have left us a doubt." Where was the clue? Well, if you were to pull down a bell-rope, Watson, where would you expect it to break? surely at the spot where it is attached to the wire. Why should it break three inches from the top, as this one has done?" "'Because it's frayed there?' "'Exactly. This end, which we can examine, is frayed. He was cunning enough to do that with his knife. But the other end is not frayed. You could not observe that from here but if you were on the mantelpiece you would see that it is cut clean off without any mark of fraying whatever. You can reconstruct what occurred. The man needed the rope. He would not tear it down for fear of giving the alarm by ringing the bell. What did he do? He sprang up on the mantelpiece, could not quite reach it, put his knee on the bracket—you will see the impression in the dust—and so got his knife to bear upon the cord. I could not reach the place by at least three inches, from which I infer that he is at least three inches a bigger man than I. Look at that mark upon the seat of the oaken chair. What is it?" -"Blood." -"Undoubtedly it is blood. This alone puts the lady's story out of court. If she was seated on the chair when the crime was done, how come the mark?" -"No, no." She was placed in the chair after the death of her husband. I'll wager that the black dress shows a corresponding mark to this. We have not yet met our Waterloo Watson, but this is our Marengo, for it begins in defeat and ends in victory. I should like now to have a few words with the nurse Teresa. We must be wary for a while if we are to get the information which we want." She was an interesting person, this stern Australian nurse, taciturn, suspicious, ungracious. It took some time before Holmes's pleasant manner and frank acceptance of all that she said thawed her into a corresponding amiability. She did not attempt to conceal her hatred for her late employer. "'Yes, sir, it is true that he threw the decanter at me. I heard him call my mistress a name, and I told him that he should not dare speak to her as if her brother had been there. Then it was that he threw it at me. He might have thrown a dozen if he but left my bonny bird alone. He was forever ill-treating her, and she too proud to complain. She will not even tell me all that he's done to her. She never told me of those marks on her arm that you saw this morning. But I know very well what they came from a stab with a hat A sly devil! God forgive me that I should speak of him so, now that he's dead. But a devil he was, if ever one walked the earth. He was all honey when we first met him only eighteen months ago. We both feel as if it were eighteen years. She would only just arrived in London. Yes, it was her first voyage. She would never been from home before. He won her with his title and his money and his false London ways. If she made a mistake, she's paid for it, if ever a woman did. What month did we meet him? Well, I tell you it was just after we arrived. We arrived in June and it was July. We were married in January last year. she's down in the morning-room again, and I have no doubt she'll see you. But you must not ask too much of her, for she's gone through all that flesh and blood. will stand." Lady Brackenstall was reclining on the same couch, but looked brighter than before. The maid had entered with us, and began once more to foment the bruise upon her mistress's brow. "'I hope,' said the lady, "'that you have not come to cross-examine me again.' Holmes answered in his gentlest voice. "'I will not cause you any unnecessary trouble, Lady Brackenstall, and my whole desire is to make things easy for you, for I am convinced that you are a much-tried woman. If you will treat me as a friend and trust me, you may find that I will justify your trust.' "'What do you want me to do?' "'To tell me the truth.' "'Mr. Holmes—' "'No, no, Lady Brackenstall. It is no use. You may have heard of any little reputation which I possess. I will stake it all on the fact that your story is an absolute fabrication." Mistress and maid were both staring at Holmes with pale faces and frightened eyes. "'You are an impudent fellow,' cried Teresa. "'Do you mean to say that my mistress has told a lie?' Holmes rose from his chair. "'Have you nothing to tell me?' "'I have told you everything. Think once more, Lady Brackenstall. Would it not be better to be frank?" For an instant there was hesitation in her beautiful face. Then some new strong thought caused it to set like a mask. "'I have told you all I know." Holmes took his hat and shrugged his shoulders. "'I am very sorry,' he said, and without another word we left the room and the house. There was a pond in the park and to this my friend led the way. It was frozen over, but a single hole was left for the convenience of a solitary swan. Holmes gazed at it, and then passed on to the lodge gate. There he scribbled a short note for Stanley Hopkins and left it with the lodge-keeper. "'It may be a hit or it may be a miss. But we are bound to do something for friend Hopkins, just to justify this second visit,' said he. I will not quite take him into my confidence yet. I think our next scene of operations must be the shipping office of the Adelaide-Southampton line, which stands at the end of Pall Mall, if I remember right. There is a second line of steamers which connect South Australia with England, but we will draw the larger cover first. Holmes's card sent in to the manager ensured instant attention, and he was not long in acquiring all the information he needed in june of ninety five only one of their line had reached a home port it was the rock of gibraltar their largest and best boat a reference to the passenger list showed that miss fraser of adelaide with her maid had made the voyage in her the boat was now somewhere south of the suez canal on her way to australia her officers were the same as in ninety five with one exception the first officer mr jack crocker had been made a captain, and was to take charge of their new ship, the Bass Rock, sailing in two days' time from Southampton. He lived at Sydenham, but he was likely to be in that morning for instructions if we cared to wait for him. No, Mr. Holmes had no desire to see him, but would be glad to know more about his record and character. His record was magnificent. There was not an officer in the fleet to touch him. As to his character, he was reliable on duty but a wild, desperate fellow off the deck of his ship, hot-headed, excitable, but loyal, honest, and kind-hearted. That was the pith of the information with which Holmes left the office of the Adelaide Southampton Company. Thence he drove to Scotland Yard, but instead of entering he sat in his cab with his brows drawn down, lost in profound thought. Finally, he drove round to the Charing Cross telegraph Office sent off a message, and then, at last, we made for Baker Street once more. "'No, I couldn't do it, Watson,' said he, as we re-entered our room. Once that warrant was made out, nothing on earth would save him. Once or twice in my career I feel that I have done more real harm by my discovery of the criminal than ever he had done by his crime. I have learned caution now, and I had rather play tricks with the law of England than with my own conscience. Let us know a little more before we act." Before evening we had a visit from Inspector Stanley Hopkins. Things were not going very well with him. "'I believe you are a wizard, Mr. Holmes. I really do sometimes think that. You have powers that are not human. Now, how on earth could you know that the stolen silver was at the bottom of that pond?' "'I didn't know.' "'But you told me to examine it.' "'You got it, then?' "'Yeah, I got it. I am very glad if I have helped you." "'But you haven't helped me. You have made the affair more difficult. What sort of burglars are they who steal silver and then throw it in the nearest pond?" It was certainly rather eccentric behaviour. I was merely going on the idea that if the silver had been taken by persons who did not want it, who merely took it for a blind, as it were, then they would naturally be anxious to get rid of it. "'But why should such an idea cross your mind?' Well, I thought it was possible when they came out through the French window there was the pond with one tempting little hole in the ice right in front of their noses. Could there be a better hiding-place?" "'Ah, a hiding-place. That's better,' cried Stonley Hopkins. "'Yeah, yeah, I see it all now. It was early. There were folk upon the roads. They were afraid of being seen with the silver, so they sank it in the pond, intending to return for it when the coast was clear. Excellent, Mister Holmes. That is better than your idea of a blind. Quite so. You have got an admirable theory. I have no doubt that my own ideas were quite wild, but you must admit that they have ended in discovering the silver. Yes, sir. Yes. It was all your doing. But I've had a bad setback. A setback? Yes, Mister Holmes. The Randall gang were arrested in New York this morning. Dear me, Hopkins. That is certainly rather against your theory that they committed a murder in Kent last night." "'It is fatal, Mr. Holmes, absolutely fatal. Still, there are other gangs of three besides the Randalls, or it may be some new gang of which the police have never heard." "'Quite so. It is perfectly possible. What, are you off?' "'Yes, Mr. Holmes. There is no rest for me until I have got to the bottom of the business. I suppose you have no hint to give me.' I have given you one." "'Which?' "'Well, I suggested a blind." "'But why, Mr. Holmes, why?' "'Ah, that's the question, of course. But I commend the idea to your mind. You might possibly find that there was something in it. You won't stop for dinner? Well, good-bye, and let us know how you get on." Dinner was over, and the table cleared before Holmes alluded to the matter again. He had lit his pipe and held his slippered feet to the cheerful blaze of the fire. Suddenly he looked at his watch. "'I expect developments, Watson.' "'When?' "'Now—within a few minutes. I dare say you thought I acted rather badly to Stanley Hopkins just now.' "'I trust your judgment.' "'A very sensible reply, Watson. You must look at it this way. What I know is unofficial. What he knows is official.' I have the right to private judgment, but he has none. He must disclose all, or he is a traitor to his service. In a doubtful case, I would not put him in so painful a position, and so I reserve my information until my own mind is clear upon the matter." "'But when will that be?' "'The time has come. You will now be present at the last scene of a remarkable little drama. There was a sound upon the stairs, and our door was opened to admit as fine a specimen of manhood as ever passed through it. He was a very tall young man, golden-moustached, blue-eyed, with a skin which had been burned by tropical suns, and a springy step which showed that the huge frame was as active as it was strong. He closed the door behind him, and then he stood with clenched hands and heaving breast, choking down some overmastering emotion sit down captain crocker you got my telegram i got your telegram and i came at the hour you said i heard you have been down to the office there's no getting away from you let's hear the worst what are you going to do with me arrest me speak out man you can't sit there and play with me like a cat with a mouse give him a cigar said holmes bite on that captain crocker and don't let your nerves run away with you I should not sit here smoking with you if I thought that you were a common criminal; you may be sure of that. Be frank with me and we may do some good; play tricks with me and I'll crush you. What do you wish me to do? To give me a true account of all that happened at the Abbey Grange last night-a true account, mind you, with nothing added and nothing taken off. I know so much already that if you go one inch off the straight, I'll blow this police whistle from my window and the affair goes out of my hands for ever." The sailor thought for a little. Then he struck his leg with his great sunburned hand. "'I'll chance it!' he cried. "'I'll believe you. are a man of your word and a white man, and I'll tell you the old story. But one thing I will say first. As far as I'm concerned, i regret nothing, and I'll fear nothing, and I'll do it all again and be proud of the job. Damn the beast! If he had as many lives as a cat!' he'd owe them all to me. But it's the Lady Mary, Mary Fraser, for never will I call her by that accursed name, when I think of getting her into trouble. I ah, who would give my life just to bring one must smile to her dear face. It's that that turns my soul into water. And yet, and yet, what less could I do? I'll tell you my story, gentlemen, and then I'll ask you, as man to man, what less could I do? I must go back a bit. You seem to know everything, so I expect that you know that I met her when she was a passenger and I was first officer of the Rock of Gibraltar. From the first day I met her she was the only woman to me. Every day of that voyage I loved her more, and many a time since have I keeled down in the darkness of the night watch and kissed the deck of that ship because I knew her dear feet had trod on it. She was never engaged to me. She treated me as fairly as ever a woman treated a man. I have no complaint to make. It was all love on my side and all good comradeship and the friendship on hers. When we parted she was free woman, I could never again be a free man. Next time I came back from sea I heard of her marriage. Well, why shouldn't she marry whom she liked? Title and money! Who could carry them better than she? She was born for all that is beautiful and dainty. I didn't grieve over her marriage. I was not such a selfish hound as that i just rejoiced that good luck had come her way and that she would had not thrown herself away on a penniless sailor that's how i loved mary fraser well i never thought to see her again but last voyage i was promoted and the new boat was yet launched so i had to wait for a couple of months with my people at sydenham one day out in a country lane i met teresa wright her old maid she told me all about her about him about everything i tell you gentlemen it nearly drove me mad this drunken hound, that he should dare to raise his hand to her, whose boots he was not worthy to lick. I met Teresa again. Then I met Mary herself, and met her again. Then she would meet me no more, but the other day I had a notice that I was to start my voyage within a week, and I determined that I would see her once before I left. Teresa was always my friend, for she loved Mary and hated this villain almost as much as I did. From her I learned the ways of the house. Mary used to sit up reading in her own little room downstairs. I crept round there last night and scratched at the window. At first she would not open to me, but in her heart I know that now she loves me, and she could not leave me in the frosty night. She whispered to me to come round to the big front window, and I found it open before me, so as to let me into the dining-room. Again I heard from her own lips things that made my blood boil, and again I cursed this brute who mishandled the woman I loved. Well, gentlemen, I was standing with her just inside the window, in all innocence, as God is my judge, when he rushed like a madman into the room, called her the vilest name that a man could use to a woman, and welted her across the face with the stick he had in his hand. I had sprung for the poker, and it was a fair fight between us. See here on my arm where his first blow fell? Then it was my turn, and I went through him as if he had been a rotten pumpkin. Do you think I was sorry? Not I. It was his life or mine. But far more than that, it was his life or hers. For how could I leave her in the power of this madman? That was how I killed him. Was I wrong? Well, then, what would either of you gentlemen have done if you had been in my position?" She had screamed when he struck her, and that brought old Teresa down from the room above. There was a bottle of wine on the sideboard, and I opened it and poured a little between Mary's lips, for she was half dead with shock. Then I took a drop myself. Theresa was as cool as ice, and it was her plot as much as mine. We must make it appear that burglars had done the thing. Theresa kept on repeating our story to her mistress while I swarmed up and cut the rope of the bell. Then I lashed her in a chair and frayed out the end of the rope to make it look natural, else they would wonder how in the world a burglar could have got there to cut it. Then I gathered up a few plates and pots of silver to carry out the idea of the robbery. And there I left them, with orders to give the alarm when I had a quarter of an hour's start. I dropped the silver into the pond and made off for Sydenham, feeling that for once in my life I had done a real good night's work. And that's the truth and the old truth, Mr. Holmes, if it cost me my neck." Holmes smoked for some time in silence, and he crossed the room and shook our visitor by the hand. "'That's what I think,' said he. "'I know that every word is true, for you have hardly said a word which I did not know. No one but an acrobat or a sailor could have got up to that bell-rope from the bracket, and no one but a sailor could have made the knots with which the cord was fastened to the chair. Only once had this lady been brought into contact with sailors, and that was on her voyage. And it was someone of her own class of life, since she was trying hard to shield him, and so showing that she loved him. You see how easy it was for me to lay my hands upon you when once I had started upon the right trail?" "'I thought the police never could have seen through our dodge." "'And the police haven't. Nor will they, to the best of my belief. Now look here, Captain Crocker. This is a very serious matter, though I am willing to admit that you acted under the most extreme provocation to which any man could be subjected. I am not sure that in defence of your own life your action will not be pronounced legitimate. However, that is for a British jury to decide. Meanwhile, I have so much sympathy for you that, if you choose to disappear in the next twenty-four hours, I will promise you that no one will hinder you. And then it will all come out?" -"Certainly it will come out." The sailor flushed with anger. -"What sort of proposal is that to make a man? I know enough of law to understand that Mary would be held as accomplice. Do you think I would leave her alone to face the music while I slunk away?" -"No, sir. Let them do their worst upon me, but, for heaven's sake, Mr. Holmes, find some way to keep my poor Mary out of the courts." Holmes for a second time held out his hand to the sailor. I was only testing you, and you ring true every time. Well, it is a great responsibility that I take upon myself, but I have given Hopkins an excellent hint, and if he can't avail himself of it I can do no more. See here, Captain Crocker we will do this in due form of law. You are the prisoner. Watson, you are a British jury, and I never met a man who was more eminently fitted to represent one. I am the judge. Now, gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the evidence. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty?" "'Not guilty, my lord,' said I. "'Vox Populi Vox Dei. You are acquitted, Captain Crocker so long as the law does not find some other victim, you are safe from me. Come back to this lady in a year, and may her future and yours justify us in the judgment which we have pronounced this night. End of the Adventure of the Abbey Grange Adventure 13 of the Return of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. ADVENTURE 13. The Adventure of the Second Stain. I had intended the adventure of the Abbey Grange to be the last of those exploits of my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, which I should ever communicate to the public. This resolution of mine was not due to any lack of material, since I have notes of many hundreds of cases to which I have never alluded nor was it caused by any waning interest on the part of my readers in the singular personality and unique methods of this remarkable man. The real reason lay in the reluctance which Mr. Holmes has shown to the continued publication of his experiences. So long as he was in actual professional practice, the records of his successes were of some practical value to him. But since he has definitely retired from London, and betaken himself to study and bee-farming on the Sussex Downs, notoriety has become hateful to him, and he has peremptorily requested that his wishes in this matter should be strictly observed. It was only upon my representing to him that I had given a promise that The Adventure of the Second Stain should be published when the times were ripe and pointing out to him that it is only appropriate that this long series of episodes should culminate in the most important international case which he has ever been called upon to handle, that I at last succeeded in obtaining his consent that a carefully guarded account of the incident should at last be laid before the public. If in telling the story I seem to be somewhat vague in certain details, the public will readily understand that there is an excellent reason for my reticence. It was then, in a year and even in a decade, that shall be nameless, that upon one Tuesday morning in autumn we found two visitors of European fame within the walls of our humble home in Baker Street. The one, austere, high-nosed, eagle-eyed, and dominant, was none other than the illustrious Lord Bellinger, twice Premier of Britain. The other, dark, clear-cut, and elegant, hardly yet of middle age, And endowed with every beauty of body and of mind, was the Right Honourable Trelawney Hope, Secretary for European Affairs, and the most rising statesman in the country. They sat side by side upon our paper-littered settee, and it was easy to see from their worn and anxious faces that it was business of the most pressing importance which had brought them. The Premier's thin, blue-veined hands were clasped tightly over the ivory head of his umbrella and his gaunt, ascetic face looked gloomily from Holmes to me. The European secretary pulled nervously at his moustache, and fidgeted with the seals of his watch-chain. "'When I discovered my loss, Mr. Holmes, which was at eight o'clock this morning, I at once informed the Prime Minister. It was his suggestion that we have both come to you.' "'Have you informed the police?' "'No, sir,' said the Prime Minister, which the quick, decisive manner for which he was famous. We have not done so, nor is it possible that we should do so. To inform the police must in the long run mean to inform the public. This is what we particularly desire to avoid." "'And why, sir?' "'Because the document in question is of such immense importance that its publication might very easily—I might almost say probably—lead to European complications of the utmost moment. It is not too much to say that peace or war may hang upon the issue. Unless its recovery can be attended with the utmost secrecy, then it may as well not be recovered at all, for all that is aimed at by those who have taken it is that its contents should be generally known." "'I understand now, Mr. Trelawney Hope. I should be much obliged if you would tell me exactly the circumstances under which this document disappeared." That can be done in a very few words, Mr. Holmes. The letter—for it was a letter from a foreign potentate—was received six days ago. It was of such importance that I have never left it in my safe, but have taken it across each evening to my house in Whitehall Terrace, and kept it in my bedroom in a locked dispatch-box. It was there last night. Of that I am certain. I actually opened the box while I was dressing for dinner, and saw the document inside. This morning it was gone. The dispatch box had stood beside the glass upon my dressing table all night. I'm a light sleeper, and so is my wife. We're both prepared to swear that no one could have entered the room during the night, and yet I repeat that the paper is gone. What time did you dine? Half past seven. How long was it before you went to bed? My wife had gone to the theatre. I waited up for her. It was half-past eleven before we went to our room. Then for four hours the dispatch-box had lain unguarded. No one is ever permitted to enter that room save the housemaid in the morning and my valet or my wife's maid during the rest of the day. They are both trusty servants who have been with us for some time. Besides. Neither of them could possibly have known that there was anything more valuable than the ordinary departmental papers in my despatch-box." "'Who did know of the existence of that letter?' "'No one in the house.' "'Surely your wife knew?' "'No, sir. I had said nothing to my wife until I missed the paper this morning." The Premier nodded approvingly. "'I have long known, sir, how high is your sense of public duty,' said he. I am convinced that in the case of a secret of this importance it would rise superior to the most intimate domestic ties." The European secretary bowed. "'You do me no more than justice, sir. Until this morning I have never breathed one word to my wife upon this matter.' "'Could she have guessed?' "'No, Mr. Holmes, she could not have guessed. Nor could any one have guessed.' "'Have you lost any documents before?' No, sir. Who is there in England who did know of the existence of this letter? Each member of the cabinet was informed of it yesterday, but the pledge of secrecy which attends every cabinet meeting was increased by the solemn warning which was given by the Prime Minister. Good heavens! to think that within a few hours I should myself have lost it!" His handsome face was distorted with a spasm of despair and his hands tore at his hair. For a moment we caught a glimpse of the natural man, impulsive, ardent, keenly sensitive. The next the aristocratic mask was replaced, and the gentle voice had returned. "'Besides, the members of the cabinet there are two or possibly three departmental officials who know of the letter. No one else in England, Mr. Holmes, I assure you.' "'But abroad?' I believe that no one abroad has seen it, save the man who wrote it. I am well convinced that his ministers that the usual official channels have not been employed." Holmes considered for some little time. Now, sir, I must ask you more particularly what this document is, and why its disappearance should have such momentous consequences. The two Statesmen exchanged a quick glance, and the Premier's shaggy eyebrows gathered in a frown. Mr. Holmes, the envelope is a long, thin one of pale-blue colour. There is a seal of red wax stamped with a crouching lion. It is addressed in large, bold handwriting to—' "'I fear, sir,' said Holmes, "'that interesting and indeed essential as these details are, my inquiries must go more to the root of things. What was the letter?' Uh, That is a state secret of the utmost importance, and I fear that I cannot tell you, nor do I see that it is necessary. If, by the aid of the powers which you are said to possess you can find such an envelope as I describe with its enclosure, you will have deserved well of your country, and earned any reward which it lies in our power to bestow." Sherlock Holmes rose with a smile. "'You are two of the most busy men in the country,' said he and in my own small way I have also a good many calls upon me. I regret exceedingly that I cannot help you in this matter, and any continuation of this interview would be a waste of time." The Premier sprang to his feet with that quick, fierce gleam of his deep-set eyes before which a cabinet has cowered. "'I am not accustomed, sir,' he began, but mastered his anger, and resumed his seat. For a minute or more we all sat in silence. Then the old statesman shrugged his shoulders. We must accept your terms, Mr. Holmes. No doubt you are right and it is unreasonable for us to expect you to act unless we give you your entire confidence." "'I agree with you,' said the younger statesman. "'Then I will tell you, relying entirely upon your honour and that of your colleague, Dr. Watson. I may appeal to your patriotism also, for I could not imagine a greater misfortune for the country than that this affair should come out. You may safely trust us. The letter, then, is from a certain foreign potentate who has been ruffled by some recent colonial developments of this country. It has been written hurriedly and upon his own responsibility entirely. Inquiries have shown that his ministers know nothing of the matter. At the same time it is couched in so unfortunate a manner, and certain phrases in it are of so provocative a character that its publication would undoubtedly lead to a most dangerous state of feeling in this country. There would be such a ferment, sir, that I do not hesitate to say that within a week of the publication of that letter this country would be involved in a great war." Holmes wrote a name upon a slip of paper and handed it to the Premier. "'Exactly. It was he, and it is this letter this letter which may well mean the expenditure of a thousand millions and the lives of a hundred thousand men which has become lost in this unaccountable fashion." "'Have you informed the sender?' "'Yes, sir. A cipher-telegram has been dispatched.' "'Perhaps he desires the publication of the letter?' "'No, sir. We have strong reason to believe that he already understands that he has acted in an indiscreet and hot-headed manner. It would be a greater blow to him and to his country than to us if this letter were to come out. If this is so, whose interest is it that the letter should come out? Why should any one desire to steal it or to publish it?" "'There, Mr. Holmes, you take me into regions of high international politics. But if you consider the European situation you will have no difficulty in perceiving the motive. The whole of Europe is an armed camp. There is a double league which makes a fair balance of military power. Great Britain holds the scales. If Britain were driven into war with one confederacy, it would assure the supremacy of the other confederacy, whether they joined in the war or not. Do you follow?" Very clearly. It is then the interest of the enemies of this potentate to secure and publish this letter so as to make a breach between his country and ours?" -"Yes, sir." -"And to whom would this document be sent if it fell into the hands of an enemy?" -"To any of the great chancelleries of Europe. It is probably speeding on its way thither at the present instant as fast as steam can take it." Mr. Trelawney Hope dropped his head on his chest and groaned aloud. The premier placed his hand kindly upon his shoulder. It is your misfortune, my dear fellow. No one can blame you. There is no precaution which you have neglected. Now, Mr. Holmes, you are in full possession of the facts. What course do you recommend?" Holmes shook his head mournfully. "'You think, sir, that unless this document is recovered there will be war?' "'I think it is very probable.' "'Then, sir, prepare for war.' That is a hard saying, Mr. Holmes. Consider the fact, sir. It is inconceivable that it was taken after eleven-thirty at night, since I understand that Mr. Hope and his wife were both in the room from that hour until the loss was found out. It was taken, then, yesterday evening between seven-thirty and eleven-thirty, probably near the earlier hour, since whoever took it evidently knew that it was there and would naturally secure it as early as possible. Now, sir, if a document of this importance were taken at that hour, where can it be now? No one has any reason to retain it. It has been passed rapidly on to those who need it. What chance have we now to overtake or even to trace it? It is beyond our reach." The Prime Minister rose from the settee. "'What you say is perfectly logical, Mr. Holmes. I feel that the matter is indeed out of our hands." "'Let us presume, for argument's sake, that the document was taken by the maid or by the valet. They are both old and tried servants. I understand you to say that your room is on the second floor, that there is no entrance from without, and that from within no one could go up unobserved. It must, then, be somebody in the house who has taken it. To whom would the thief take it? To one of several international spies and secret agents, whose names are tolerably familiar to me. There are three who may be said to be the heads of their profession. I will begin my research by going round and finding if each of them is at his post. If one is missing, especially if he has disappeared since last night, we will have some indication as to where the document has gone." "'Why should he be missing?' asked the European secretary. He would take the letter to an embassy in London, as likely as not." "'I fancy not. These agents work independently, and their relations with the embassies are often strained." The Prime Minister nodded his acquiescence. "'I believe you are right, Mr. Holmes. He would take so valuable a prize to headquarters with his own hands. I think that your course of action is an excellent one. Meanwhile, hope we cannot neglect all our other duties on account of this one misfortune. Should there be any fresh developments during the day, we shall communicate with you, and you will no doubt let us know the results of your own inquiries." The two statesmen bowed and walked gravely from the room. When our illustrious visitors had departed, Holmes lit his pipe in silence, and sat for some time lost in the deepest thought. I had opened the morning paper and was immersed in a sensational crime which had occurred in London the night before, when my friend gave an exclamation, sprang to his feet, and laid his pipe down upon the mantelpiece. Yes, said he, there is no better way of approaching it. The situation is desperate, but not hopeless. Even now, if we should be sure which of them has taken it, it is just possible that it has not yet passed out of his hands. After all, it is a question of money with these fellows, and I have the British Treasury behind me. If it's on the market, I'll buy it. If it means another penny on the income tax, hm! It is inconceivable that the fellow might hold it back to see what bids come from this side before he tries his luck on the other. There are only those three capable of playing so bold a game." There are Oberstein, La Rociere, and Eduardo Lucas. I will see each of them." I glanced at my morning paper. "'Is that Eduardo Lucas of Godolphin Street?' "'Yes.' "'You will not see him.' "'Why not?' "'He was murdered in his house last night.' "'My friend has so often astonished me in the course of our adventures it was with a sense of exultation that I realized how completely I had astonished him. He stared in amazement, and then snatched the paper from my hands. This was the paragraph which I had been engaged in reading when he rose from his chair. Murder in Westminster A crime of mysterious character was committed last night at 16 Godolphin Street, one of the old-fashioned and secluded rows of eighteenth-century houses which lie between the river and the abbey, almost in the shadow of the great tower of the Houses of Parliament. This small but select mansion has been inhabited for some years by Mr. Eduardo Lucas, well known in society circles both on account of his charming personality and because he has the well-deserved reputation of being one of the best amateur tenors in the country. Mr. Lucas is an unmarried man, thirty-four years of age, and his establishment consists of Mrs. Pringle, an elderly housekeeper, and of Mitten, his valet. The former retires early and sleeps at the top of the house. The valet was out for the evening, visiting a friend at Hammersmith. From ten o'clock onward Mr. Lucas had the house to himself. What occurred during that time has not yet transpired, but at a quarter to twelve Police Constable Barrett, passing along Godolphin Street, observed that the door of number sixteen was ajar he knocked but received no answer perceiving a light in the front room he advanced into the passage and again knocked but without reply he then pushed open the door and entered the room was in a state of wild disorder the furniture being all swept to one side and one chair lying on its back in the centre beside this chair and still grasping one of its legs lay the unfortunate tenant of the house He had been stabbed to the heart and must have died instantly. The knife with which the crime had been committed was a curved Indian dagger plucked down from a trophy of Oriental arms which adorned one of the walls. Robbery does not appear to have been the motive of the crime, for there had been no attempt to remove the valuable contents of the room. Mr. Eduardo Lucas was so well known and popular that his violent and mysterious fate will arouse painful interest and intense sympathy in a widespread circle of friends." "'Well, Watson, what do you make of this?' asked Holmes, after a long pause. "'It is an amazing coincidence.' "'A coincidence! Here is one of the three men whom we had named as possible actors in this drama, and he meets a violent death during the very hours when we know that the drama was being enacted. The odds are enormous against it being coincidence.' No figures could express them. No, my dear Watson, the two events are connected—must be connected. It is for us to find the connection. But now the official police must know all." Not at all. They know all they see at Godolphin Street. They know, and shall know, nothing of Whitehall Terrace. Only we know of both events and can trace the relation between them. There is one obvious point which would in any case have turned my suspicions against Lucas. Godolphin Street, Westminster, is only a few minutes' walk from Whitehall Terrace. The other secret agents, whom I have named, live in the extreme West End. It was easier, therefore, for Lucas than for the others to establish a connection or receive a message from the European secretary's household. A small thing, and yet where events are compressed into a few hours it may prove essential. Hello! What have we here?" Mrs. Hudson had appeared with a lady's card upon her salver. Holmes glanced at it, raised his eyebrows, and handed it over to me. "'Ask Lady Hilda Trelawney Hope if she will be kind enough to step up,' said he. A moment later, our modest apartment already so distinguished that morning, was further honoured by the entrance of the most lovely woman in London. I had often heard of the beauty of the youngest daughter of the Duke of Belminster, but no description of it and no contemplation of colourless photographs had prepared me for the subtle, delicate charm and the beautiful colouring of that exquisite head. And yet, as we saw it that autumn morning, it was not its beauty which would be the first thing to impress the observer. The cheek was lovely, but it was paled with emotion. The eyes were bright, but it was the brightness of fever. The sensitive mouth was tight and drawn in an effort after self-command. Terror, not beauty, was what sprang first to the eye, as our fair visitor stood framed for an instant in the open door. "'Has my husband been here, Mr. Holmes?' "'Yes, madam, he has been here. Mr. Holmes, I implore you not to tell him that I came here!" Holmes bowed coldly and motioned the lady to a chair. "'Your ladyship places me in a very delicate position. I beg that you will sit down and tell me what you desire, but I fear that I cannot make any unconditional promise." She swept across the room and seated herself with her back to the window. It was a queenly presence—tall, graceful and intensely womanly. "'Mr. Holmes,' she said, and her white-gloved hands clasped and unclasped as she spoke, "'I will speak frankly to you, in the hopes that it may induce you to speak frankly in return. There is complete confidence between my husband and me on all matters, save one. That one is politics. On this his lips are sealed. He tells me nothing. Now, I am aware that there was a most deplorable occurrence in our house last night. I know that a paper has disappeared, but because the matter is political, my husband refuses to take me into his complete confidence. Now it is essential, essential, I say, that I should thoroughly understand it. You are the only other person, save only these politicians, who knows the true facts. I beg you, then, Mr. Holmes, to tell me exactly what has happened and what it will lead to. Tell me all, Mr. Holmes. Let no regard for your client's interests keep you silent, for I assure you that his interests, if he would only see it, would be best served by taking me into his complete confidence. What was this paper which was stolen?" "'Madam, what you ask me is really impossible.' She groaned and sank her face in her hands. "'You must see that it is so, madam. If your husband thinks fit to keep you in the dark over this matter, is it for me, who has only learned the true facts under the pledge of professional secrecy, to tell what he has withheld? It is not fair to ask it. It is him you must ask." "'I have asked him. I came to you as a last resource. But without you, you are telling me anything definite, Mr. Holmes. You may do a great service if you would enlighten me on one point." what is it madam is my husband's political career likely to suffer through this incident well madam unless it is set right it may certainly have a very unfortunate effect ah she drew in her breath sharply as one whose doubts are resolved one more question mr holmes from an expression which my husband dropped in the first shock of this disaster I understood that terrible public consequences might arise from the loss of this document. If he said so, I certainly cannot deny it. Of what nature are they? Nay, madam, there again you ask me more than I can possibly answer. Then I will take up no more of your time. I cannot blame you, Mr. Holmes, for having refused to speak more freely, and you, on your side, will not, I am sure, think the worse of me because I desire even against his will to share my husband's anxieties. Once more I beg that you will say nothing of my visit." She looked back at us from the door, and I had a last impression of that beautiful haunted face, the startled eyes, and the drawn mouth. Then she was gone. "'Now, Watson, the fair sex is your department,' said Holmes with a smile, when the dwindling frou-frou of skirts had ended in the slam of the front door. What was the fair lady's game? What did she really want? Surely her own statement is clear and her anxiety very natural. Hmm. Think of her appearance, Watson, her manner, her suppressed excitement, her restlessness, her tenacity in asking questions. Remember that she comes of a caste who do not lightly show emotion. She was certainly much moved. Remember also the curious earnestness with which she assured us that it was the best for her husband that she should know all. What did she mean by that? And you must have observed, Watson, how she manoeuvred to have the light at her back. She did not wish us to read her expression." Yes, she chose the one chair in the room. And yet the motives of women are so inscrutable. You remember the woman at Margate whom I suspected for the same reason. No powder on her nose. That proved to be the correct solution. How can you build on such a quicksand? Their most trivial action may mean volumes, or their most extraordinary conduct may depend upon a hairpin or a curling tongues Good morning, Watson. You are off? Yes. I will while away the morning at Godolphin Street with our friends of the regular establishment. With Eduardo Lucas lies the solution of our problem, though I must admit that I have not an inkling as to what form it may take. It is a capital mistake to theorize in advance of the facts. Do you stay on guard, my good Watson, and receive any fresh visitors? I will join you at lunch if I am able." All that day and the next and the next Holmes was in a mood which his friends would call taciturn and others morose. He ran out and ran in, smoked incessantly, played snatches on his violin, sank into reveries, devoured sandwiches at irregular hours, and hardly answered the casual questions which I put to him. It was evident to me that things were not going well with him or his quest. He would say nothing of the case, and it was from the papers that I learned the particulars of the inquest, and the arrest with the subsequent release of John Mitton, the valet of the deceased. The coroner's jury brought in the obvious wilful murder but the parties remained as unknown as ever no motive was suggested the room was full of articles of value but none had been taken the dead man's papers had not been tampered with they were carefully examined and showed that he was a keen student of international politics an indefatigable gossip a remarkable linguist and an untiring letter writer he had been on intimate terms with the leading politicians of several countries but nothing sensational was discovered among the documents which filled his drawers. As to his relations with women, they appeared to have been promiscuous but superficial. He had many acquaintances among them, but few friends and no one whom he loved. His habits were regular, his conduct inoffensive. His death was an absolute mystery, and likely to remain so. As to the arrest of John Mitten, the valet, it was a counsel of despair as an alternative to absolute inaction, but no case could be sustained against him. He had visited friends in Hammersmith that night. The alibi was complete. It is true that he started home at an hour which would have brought him to Westminster before the time when the crime was discovered, but his own explanation that he had walked part of the way seemed probable enough in view of the fineness of the night. He had actually arrived at twelve o'clock and appeared to be overwhelmed by the unexpected tragedy. He had always been on good terms with his master. Several of the dead man's possessions, notably a small case of razors, had been found in the valet's boxes, but he explained that they had been presents from the deceased, and the housekeeper was able to corroborate the story. Mitten had been in Lucas's employment for three years. It was noticeable that Lucas did not take Mitten on the continent with him sometimes he visited paris for 3 months on end but mitten was left in charge of the godolphin street house as to the housekeeper she had heard nothing on the night of the crime if her master had a visitor he had himself admitted him so for 3 mornings the mystery remained so far as i could follow it in the papers if holmes knew more he kept his own counsel but as he told me that inspector lestrade had taken him into his confidence in the case I knew that he was in close touch with every development. Upon the fourth day there appeared a long telegram from Paris which seemed to solve the whole question. A discovery has just been made by the Parisian police," said the Daily Telegraph, which raises the veil which hung around the tragic fate of Mr. Eduardo Lucas, who met his death by violence last Monday night at Godolphin Street, Westminster. Our readers will remember that the deceased gentleman was found stabbed in his room, and that some suspicion attached to his valet, but that the case broke down on an alibi. Yesterday a lady who has been known as Madame Henri Fournet, occupying a small villa in the Rue Austerlitz, was reported to the authorities by her servants as being insane. An examination showed she had indeed developed mania of a dangerous and permanent form. On inquiry, the police have discovered that Madame Henri Fournet only returned from a journey to London on Tuesday last, and there is evidence to connect her with the crime at Westminster. A comparison of photographs has proved conclusively that Monsieur Henri Fernet and Eduardo Lucas were really one and the same person, and that the deceased had for some reason lived a double life in London and Paris. Madame Fournet who is of Creole origin, is of an extremely excitable nature, and has suffered in the past from attacks of jealousy which have amounted to frenzy. It is conjectured that it was in one of these that she committed the terrible crimes which has caused such a sensation in London. Her movements upon the Monday night have not yet been traced, but it is undoubted that a woman answering to her description attracted much attention at Charing Cross Station on Tuesday morning by the wildness of her appearance and the violence of her gestures. It is probable, therefore, that the crime was either committed when insane, or that its immediate effect was to drive the unhappy woman out of her mind. At present she is unable to give any coherent account of the past, and the doctors hold out no hopes of the re-establishment of her reason. There is evidence that a woman who might have been Madame Fournet was seen for some hours upon Monday night watching the house in Godolphin Street. What do you think of that, Holmes?" I had read the account aloud to him while he finished his breakfast. "'My dear Watson,' said he as he rose from the table and paced up and down the room, "'you are most long-suffering, but if I have told you nothing in the last three days it is because there is nothing to tell. Even now this report from Paris does not help us much. Surely it is final as regards the man's death. The man's death is a mere incident, a trivial episode, in comparison with our real task, which is to trace this document and save a European catastrophe. Only one important thing has happened in the last three days, and that is that nothing has happened. I get reports almost hourly from the Government, and it is certain that nowhere in Europe is there any sign of trouble. Now. If this letter were loose—'No, it can't be loose. But if it isn't loose, where can it be? Who has it? Why is it held back? That's the question that beats in my brain like a hammer. Was it indeed a coincidence that Lucas should meet his death on the night when the letter disappeared? Did the letter ever reach him? If so, why is it not among his papers? did this mad wife of his carry it off with her? If so, is it in her house in Paris? How could I search for it without the French police having their suspicions aroused? It is a case, my dear Watson, where the law is as dangerous to us as the criminals are. Every man's hand is against us, and yet the interests at stake are colossal. Should I bring it to a successful conclusion, it will certainly represent the crowning glory of my career. Ah. Here is my latest from the front." He glanced hurriedly at the note which had been handed in. "'Hello! Lestrade seems to have observed something of interest. Put on your hat, Watson, and we will stroll down together to Westminster.' It was my first visit to the scene of the crime, a high, dingy, narrow-chested house, prim, formal and solid, like the century which gave it birth. Lestrade's bulldog features gazed out at us from the front window, and he greeted us warmly when a big constable had opened the door and let us in. The room into which we were shown was that in which the crime had been committed, but no trace of it now remained save an ugly, irregular stain upon the carpet. This carpet was a small square drugget in the centre of the room, surrounded by a broad expanse of beautiful old-fashioned wood flooring in square blocks, highly polished over the fireplace was a magnificent trophy of weapons, one of which had been used on that tragic night. In the window was a sumptuous writing-desk, and every detail of the apartment —the pictures, the rugs, and the hangings—all pointed to a taste which was luxurious to the verge of effeminacy. "'Seen the Paris News?' asked Lestrade. Holmes nodded. "'Our French friends seem to have touched the spot this time. No doubt it's just as they say. She knocked at the door, surprise visit, I guess, for he kept his life in watertight compartments. He let her in, couldn't keep her in the street. She told him how she had traced him, reproached him. One thing led to another, and then with that dagger so handy the end soon came. It wasn't all done in an instant, though, for these chairs were all swept over yonder, and he had one in his hand as if he'd tried to hold her off with it. We've got it all clear as if we can see it. Holmes raised his eyebrows. And yet you have sent for me. Oh, yes, that's another matter. A mere trifle, but the sort of thing you take an interest in. Queer, you know, and what you might call freakish. It's nothing to do with the main fact. Can't have, on the face of it. What is it, then? Well, you know, after a crime of this sort, we're very careful to keep things in their position. Nothing's been moved. Officer in charge here day and night. This morning, as the man was buried and the investigation over, as far as this room is concerned, we thought we could tidy up a bit. This carpet, you see, it's not fastened down. only just laid there. We had occasion to raise it. We found—' "'Yes. You found—' Holmes's face grew tense with anxiety. "'Well, I'm sure you'd never guess in a hundred years what we did find. You see that stain on that carpet?' Well, a great deal must have soaked through, must it not?" "'Undoubtedly it must." "'Well, you will be surprised to hear that there is no stain on the white woodwork to correspond." "'No stain! But there must—' "'Yeah, so you would say, but the fact remains that there isn't.' He took the corner of the carpet in his hand, and turning it over he showed that it was indeed as he said. "'But the underside is as stained as the upper.' it must have left a mark." Lestrade chuckled with delight at having puzzled the famous expert. "'Now, I'll show you the explanation. There is a second stain, but it does not correspond with the other. See for yourself." As he spoke he turned over another portion of the carpet, and there, sure enough, was a great crimson spill upon the square white facing of the old-fashioned floor. "'What do you make of that, Mr. Holmes?' Why, it is simple enough. The two stains did correspond, but the carpet has been turned round. As it was square and unfastened it was easily done. The official police don't need you, Mr. Holmes, to tell them that the carpet must have been turned round. That's clear enough, for the stains lie above each other, if you lay it over this way. But what I want to know is who shifted the carpet and why i could see from holmes's rigid face that he was vibrating with inward excitement look here lestrade said he has that constable in the passage been in the charge of the place all the time yes he has well take my advice examine him carefully don't do it before us we'll wait here you take him into the back room you'll be more likely to get a confession out of him alone ask him how he dared to admit people and leave them alone in this room. Don't ask him if he's done it. Take it for granted. Tell him you know someone has been here. Press him. Tell him that a full confession is his only chance of forgiveness. Do exactly what I tell you." "'By George! If he knows, I'll have it out of him!' cried Lestrade. He darted into the hall, and a few moments later his bullying voice sounded from the back room. "'Now, Watson, Now, cried Holmes with frenzied eagerness, all the demoniacal force of the man masked behind that listless manner burst out in a paroxysm of energy. He tore the drugget from the floor, and in an instant was down on his hands and knees, clawing at each of the squares of wood beneath it. One turned sideways as he dug his nails into the edge of it. It hinged back like the lid of a box. A small black cavity opened beneath it. Holmes plunged his eager hand into it and drew it out with a bitter snarl of anger and disappointment. It was empty. "'Quick, Watson, quick! Get it back again!' The wooden lid was replaced, and the drugget had only just been drawn straight when Lestrade's voice was heard in the passage. He found Holmes leaning languidly against the mantelpiece, resigned and patient, endeavouring to conceal his irrepressible yawns. "'Sorry to keep you waiting, Mr. Holmes. I can see that you're bored to death with the whole affair. Well, he has confessed, all right. Come in here, Macpherson. Let these gentlemen hear of your most inexcusable conduct." The big constable, very hot and penitent, sidled into the room. "'I meant no harm, sir, I'm sure. The young woman came to the door last evening, mistook the house she did, and then we got talking. It's lonesome when you're on duty here all day.' well what happened then she wanted to see where the crime was done i'd read about it in the papers she said she's very respectable well-spoken young woman sir and i saw no harm in letting her have a peep when she saw that mark on the carpet down she dropped on the floor and lay as if she were dead i ran to the back and got some water but i couldn't bring it to her then i went round the corner to the ivy plant for some brandy by the time I brought it back the young woman had recovered and was off. Shamed of herself, I dare say, and dared not face me." "'How about moving that drugget?' "'Well, sir, it was a bit rumpled, certainly, when I came back. You see, she fell on it, and it lies on a polished floor with nothing to keep it in place. I strained it out afterwards.' "'It's a lesson to you that you can't deceive me, Constable Macpherson,' said Lestrade with dignity." No doubt you thought that your breach of duty could never be discovered, and yet a mere glance at that drugger was enough to convince me that some one has been admitted to the room. It's lucky for you, my man, that nothing is missing, or you would find yourself in Queer Street. I am sorry to have called you down over such a petty business, Mr. Holmes, but I thought the point of the second stain not corresponding with the first would interest you." "'Certainly it was most interesting.' "'Has this woman only been here once, Constable?' "'Yes, sir, only once.' "'Who was she?' I "'Don't know the name, sir. Was answering an advertisement about typewriting and came to the wrong number. Very pleasant, genteel young woman, sir.' "'Tall. Handsome?' "'Yes, sir. She is a well-grown young woman. I suppose you might say she was handsome. Perhaps some would say she was very handsome.' "'Oh, officer, do let me have a peep.' says she. She had pretty coaxing ways, as you might say, and I thought there was no harm in letting her just put her head through the door." How was she dressed? "'Quiet, sir, a long mantle down to her feet. What time was it?' "'It was just growing dusk at the time. They were light in the lamps as I came back with the brandy." "'Very good,' said Holmes. "'Come, Watson. I think that we have more important work elsewhere.' As we left the house, Lestrade remained in the front room while the repentant constable opened the door to let us out. Holmes turned on the step and held up something in his hand. The constable stared intently. "'Good Lord, sir!' he cried with amazement on his face. Holmes put his fingers on his lips, replaced his hand in his breast-pocket, and burst out laughing as we turned down the street. "'Excellent!' said he. Come, friend Watson, the curtain rings up for the last act. You will be relieved to hear that there will be no war, that the right Honorable Trelawney Hope will suffer no setback in his brilliant career, that the indiscreet Sovereign will receive no punishment for his indiscretion, that the Prime Minister will have no European complication to deal with, and that with a little tact and management upon our part, nobody will be a penny the worse for what might have been a very ugly incident." my mind filled with admiration for this extraordinary man. "'You have solved it!' I cried. "'Hardly that, Watson. There are some points which are as dark as ever. But we have so much that it will be our own fault if we cannot get the rest. We will go straight to Whitehall Terrace and bring the matter to a head.' When we arrived at the residence of the European Secretary it was for Lady Hilda Trelawney Hope that Sherlock Holmes inquired we were shown into the morning-room. "'Mr. Holmes,' said the lady, and her face was pink with her indignation, "'this is surely most unfair and ungenerous upon your part. I desired, as I have explained, to keep my visit to you a secret, lest my husband should think that I was intruding into his affairs, and yet you compromise me by coming here and so showing that there are business relations between us.' "'Unfortunately, madam,' I had no possible alternative. I have been commissioned to recover this immensely important paper. I must therefore ask you, madam, to be kind enough to place it in my hands." The lady sprang to her feet, with the colour all dashed in an instant from her beautiful face. Her eyes glazed. She tottered. I thought that she would faint. Then with a grand effort she rallied from the shock and a supreme astonishment and indignation chased every other expression from her features. "'You—you you insult me, Mr. Holmes!' "'Come, come, madam. It is a useless. Give up the letter!' She darted to the bell. "'The butler shall show you out!' "'Do not ring, Lady Hilda. If you do, then all my earnest efforts to avoid a scandal will be frustrated. Give up the letter, and all be set right. If you will work with me I can arrange everything. If you work against me I must expose you." She stood grandly defiant, a queenly figure, her eyes fixed upon his as if she would read his very soul. Her hand was on the bell, but she had forborne to ring it. "'You are trying to frighten me. It is not a very manly thing, Mr. Holmes, to come here and browbeat a woman. You say that you know something. What is it that you know?' "'Pray sit down, madam. You will hurt yourself there if you fall. I will not speak until you sit down. Thank you.' "'I give you five minutes, Mr. Holmes.' "'One is enough, Lady Hilda. I know of your visit to Eduardo Lucas, of your giving him this document, of your ingenious return to the room last night, and of the manner in which you took the letter from the hiding-place under the carpet.' She stared at him with an ashen face and gulped twice before she could speak. "'You are mad, Mr. Holmes! You are mad!' she cried at last. He drew a small piece of cardboard from his pocket. It was the face of a woman cut out of a portrait. "'I have carried this because I thought it might be useful,' said he. "'The policeman has recognized it.' She gave a gasp, and her head dropped back in the chair. "'Come, Lady Hilda, you have the letter.' The matter may still be adjusted. I have no desire to bring trouble to you. My duty ends when I have returned the lost letter to your husband. Take my advice and be frank with me. It is your only chance." Her courage was admirable. Even now she would not own defeat. "'I tell you again, Mr. Holmes, that you are under some absurd illusion." Holmes rose from his chair. I am sorry for you, Lady Hilda. I have done my best for you. I can see that it is all in vain." He rang the bell. The butler entered. "'Is Mr. Trelawney Hope at home?' "'He will be home, sir, a quarter to one.' Holmes glanced at his watch. "'Still a quarter of an hour,' said he. "'Very good. I shall wait.' The butler had hardly closed the door behind him. When Lady Hilda was down on her knees at Holmes's feet, her hands outstretched, her beautiful face upturned and wet with her tears. "'Oh, spare me, Mr. Holmes, spare me!' she pleaded in a frenzy of supplication. "'For heaven's sake, don't tell him! I love him so! I would not bring one shadow on his life, and this, I know, would break his noble heart!' Holmes raised the lady. I am thankful, madam, that you have come to your senses even at this last moment. There is not an instant to lose. Where is the letter?" She darted across to a writing-desk, unlocked it, and drew out a long blue envelope. "'Here it is, Mr. Holmes! Would to heaven I had never seen it!' "'How can we return it?' Holmes muttered. "'Quick! Quick! We must think of some way. Where is the dispatch-box?' "'Still in his bedroom!' What a stroke of luck! Quick, madam, bring it here!" A moment later she had appeared with a red flat box in her hand. "'How did you open it before? You have a duplicate key?' "'Yes, of course you have. Open it!' From out of her bosom Lady Hilda had drawn a small key. The box flew open. It was stuffed with papers. Holmes thrust the blue envelope deep down into the heart of them, between the leaves of some other document. The box was shut, locked, and returned to the bedroom. "'Now we are ready for him,' said Holmes. "'We have still ten minutes. I am going far to screen you, Lady Hilda. In return you will spend the time in telling me frankly the real meaning of this extraordinary affair.' "'Mr. Holmes, I will tell you everything,' cried the lady. "'Oh, Mr. Holmes, I would cut off my right hand before I gave him a moment of sorrow. There is no woman in all London. Who loves her husband as I do, and yet if he knew how I have acted, how I have been compelled to act, he would never forgive me. For his own honour stands so high that he could not forget or pardon a lapse in another. Help me, Mr. Holmes, my happiness, his happiness, our very lives are at stake." Quick, madam, the time grows short. It was a letter of mine, Mr. Holmes, an indiscreet letter written before my marriage, a foolish letter, a letter of an impulsive loving girl. I meant no harm, and, and yet he would have thought it criminal. Had he read that letter his confidence would have been forever destroyed. It is years since I wrote it. I had thought that the whole matter was forgotten. Then at last I heard from this man Lucas that it had passed into his hands, and that he would lay it before my husband. I implored his mercy. He said that he would return my letter if I would bring him a certain document which he described in my husband's despatch-box. He had some spy in the office who had told him of his existence. He assured me that no harm would come to my husband. Put yourself in my position, Mr. Holmes. What was I to do?" -"Take your husband into your confidence." -"I could not, Mr. Holmes. I could not." On the one side seemed certain ruin on the other terrible as it seemed to take my husband's paper still in a matter of politics i could not understand the consequences while in a matter of love and trust they were only too clear to me i did it mr holmes i took an impression of his key this man lucas furnished a duplicate i opened his dispatch box took the paper and conveyed it to godolphin street What happened there, madam?" I tapped at the door as agreed. Lucas opened it. I followed him into his room, leaving the hall door ajar behind me, for I feared to be alone with the man. I remember that there was a woman outside as I entered. Our business was soon done. He had my letter on his desk. I handed him the document. He gave me the letter. At this instant there was a sound at the door. There were steps in the passage. Lucas quickly turned back the drugget, thrust the document into some hiding-place there, and covered it over. What happened after that is like some fearful dream. I have a vision of a dark, frantic face, of a woman's voice, which screamed in French. My waiting is not in vain. At last, at last, I have found you with her. There was a savage struggle. I saw him with a chair in his hand, a knife gleamed in hers. I rushed from the horrible scene, ran from the house, and only next morning in the paper did I learn the dreadful result. That night I was happy, for I had my letter, and I had not seen yet what the future would bring. It was the next morning that I realised that I had only exchanged one trouble for another. My husband's anguish at the loss of his paper went to my heart. I could hardly prevent myself from there, and then kneeling down at his feet and telling him what I had done. But that again would mean a confession of the past. I came to you that morning in order to understand the full enormity of my offence. From the instant that I grasped it my whole mind was turned to the one thought of getting back my husband's paper. It must still be where Lucas had placed it, for it was concealed before this dreadful woman entered the room. If it had not been for her coming. I should not have known where his hiding-place was. How was I to get into the room? For two days I watched the place, but the door was never left open. Last night I made a last attempt. What I did, and how I succeeded, you have already learned. I brought the paper back with me, and thought of destroying it, since I could see no way of returning it without confessing my guilt to my husband. Heavens! I hear his step upon the stair. The European secretary burst excitedly into the room. "'Any news, Mr. Holmes, any news?' he cried. "'I have some hopes.' "'Oh, thank heaven!' his face became radiant. "'The Prime Minister is lunching with me. May he share your hopes? He has nerves of steel, and yet I know that he has hardly slept since this terrible event. Jacobs, will you ask the Prime Minister to come up? As to you, dear, I fear that this is a matter of politics. We will join you in a few minutes in the dining-room." The Prime Minister's manner was subdued, but I could see by the gleam of his eyes and the twitchings of his bony hands that he shared the excitement of his young colleague. "'I understand that you have something to report, Mr. Holmes.' "'Purely negative as yet,' my friend answered. I have inquired at every point where it might be, and I am sure that there is no danger to be apprehended." But that is not enough, Mr. Holmes. We cannot live forever on such a volcano. We must have something definite." "'I am in hopes of getting it. That is why I am here. The more I think of the matter, the more convinced I am that the letter has never left this house.' "'Mr. Holmes.' "'If it had, it would have certainly been public by now.' "'But why should anyone take it in order to keep it in this house?' I am not convinced that any one did take it." "'Then how could it leave the dispatch-box?' "'I am not convinced that it ever did leave the dispatch-box.' "'Mr. Holmes, this joking is very ill-timed. You have my assurance that it left the box.' "'Have you examined the box since Tuesday morning?' "'No, it was not necessary.' "'You may conceivably have overlooked it.' "'Impossible, I say. But I am not convinced of it. I have known such things to happen. I presume there are other papers there. Well, it may have got mixed up with them." "'It was on the top.' "'Someone may have shaken the box and displaced it.' "'No, no. I had everything out.' "'Surely it is easily decided, Hope,' said the Premier. "'Let us have the dispatch-box brought in.' The secretary rang the bell. "'Jacobs, bring down my dispatch-box. This is a farcical waste of time, but still, if nothing else will satisfy you, it shall be done." "'Thank you, Jacobs. Put it here. I have always had the key on my watch-chain. Here are the papers, you see. Letter from Lord Merrow, Report from Sir Charles Hardy, Memorandum from Belgrade, Note on the Russo-German Grain Taxes, Letter from Madrid, Note from Lord Flowers. "'Good heavens! What is this?' "'Lord Bellinger.' "'Lord Bellinger?' The Premier snatched the blue envelope from his hand. "'Yes, it is it. And the letter is intact, Hope. I congratulate you.' "'Thank you, thank you. What a weight from my heart. But this is inconceivable, impossible. Mr. Holmes, you are a wizard, a sorcerer. How did you know it was there?' "'Because I knew it was nowhere else.' "'I cannot believe my eyes.' He ran wildly to the door. "'Where is my wife? I must tell her all is well.' Hilda! Hilda! We heard his voice on the stairs. The Premier looked at Holmes with twinkling eyes. Come, sir, said he, there is more than this than meets the eye. How came the letter back in the box? Holmes turned away smiling from the keen scrutiny of those wonderful eyes. We also have our diplomatic secrets, said he, and picking up his hat, he turned to the door. End of the adventure of The Second Stain. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.